0: We don't have big TV screens. We don't have rock and roll bands. We still have a lot of baby boomers playing the same guitar they've been playing since the 1960s. We're countercultural not because the culture is full of evil people, but because sort of evil ideas have, have gotten in there. Friday fish fries, your Saturday potlucks, your Sunday coming out of church and talking to your neighbors and too much of America doesn't have that anymore.
1: Hello there, this is George C and you're listening to See the Future, a podcast focused on interesting conversations with interesting people in business, government, politics, and academia. Thanks for listening. And I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of See the Future, where we try to give you information that's compelling for prospective American events and people. And I'm I'm just thrilled this morning to Welcome, Tim Carney, to the program, who's with AEI and the Washington Examiner and is a deep thinker on American culture and ideals and uh, where we're heading in the future. Would you sell some books tell our listeners about your book and and why you wrote it and and what your thematic is for it and how you think it's it's uh, compelling for Americans to understand?
0: Well, I mean, we already sort of hinted at it, which is so the book is Alienated America. And the subtitle is, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Now, that's a big topic, but I'm my day job at The Examiner is as a political reporter. My other day job at the American Enterprise Institute is sort of trying to understand everything from sort of economic policy to culture from a, from a higher perspective. And what happened was, when I saw Donald Trump come down the escalator and say, the American dream is dead, I thought... Well, that's a weird message. I don't think that's going to resonate. And then I went around to these rallies. And what I found was that was what was resonating. Where he did strongest was among people who said, who weren't necessarily folks who agreed with him on immigration as a prime issue or agreed with him on trade as a prime issue. Those resonated with him, with them. They were people who were voting that the American dream was dead. Not everybody who voted for him. In the end, half the country voted for him, right? But I I would go to these rallies and I would see people who had never gone to a political event before, who had never voted before. And now for a Republican primary, we're waiting four hours for a rally. That's the people I was focusing on. And what I found was that it wasn't sort of this simple economic thing, my factory shut down. It wasn't the story the left told, which was, these are a bunch of racist, white, straight Christian men who were angry that they lost their privilege. There was something cultural there, and there was something they lost. But what I argue in Alienated America is that what they lost was mostly community. It was that these were people who, I'd say, make America great again. What's what's ungreat about America? And they would say... Well, when I was a kid, we used to have Memorial Day parades and kids would plant, we'd plant American flags by all the gravestones. And I just thought, what does that have to do with anything? I'm here to talk about taxes or talk about immigration, you know? And then I realized that the the sense of cohesion, of belonging, of community, that had been lost in so much of America. And we all feel it probably, but it had been lost most acutely in working class parts of middle America small rural towns, that sort of thing, where the church has closed down, the neighborhood coffee shop has closed down, where the public schools don't have any buy-in from the parents, that in a lot of these places, you had these folks who looked around and said, I need to rebuild my community, but it's falling apart. That's what leads to the sense that the American dream is dead. So the argument, to go to an even higher altitude, is the American dream is about like your your. Uh, Friday fish fries, your Saturday potlucks, your Sunday coming out of church and talking to your neighbors, and too much of America doesn't have that anymore.
1: Yeah, it's a very similar phenomenon to what uh, Vance dictated in Hillbilly Elegy. He kind of talks about how his life was in free fall until he joined the Marine Corps, and until then, you know, his mother went through five or so men and— they had drug issues and their community was collapsing and, and Vance found the Marine Corps and God and pulled himself out of it and there's there's millions of other Americans and, and specifically in Appalachia and the Rust Belt that that are in similar situations and they're they're desperate and they they tend to back Trump because they view him as their only hope but these these systemic social problems not systemic racism but systemic uh, breakdown of family and church and community within the inner cities. Um, government has proven for several centuries now in our country that it's it's not the solution for that. The solution has got to come from the community itself and the people within that community. So I'm going to pivot to my next question, which is: You look at every poll. George Barna uh, a pollster is is one in particular that polls the the rate of church attendance and church going and church affiliation among. Uh, the coming millennial and gen Z generations that are going to mm-hmm. take over here before too long and in 65 percent of US churches across the board whether you're cat whether it's Catholic or Protestant or charismatic or whatever category you want to put it in is stagnant or declining yep so in terms of this revitalization of communities that that you're that you're pointing out has to happen to stabilize American society that's that's not a good sign is it
0: no it's definitely not the secularization of America, might be tolerable if you are a wealthy family with two college degrees and two advanced degrees and you live in chevy chase maryland that's a sort of the elite town that i use in alienated america it's a suburb about nine miles from me right on the dc border everybody has an advanced degree homes are 1.5 million they actually go to church more than you think that's another thing wealthy highly educated people in america um go to church more than you think but they Go to church a lot less than they did 30 years ago, and what they're doing instead, though, is not just sitting at home. It's you know running a civic association, running a T-ball, going to yoga. Um, th- that there's other organizations that they're buying into when they lose church. In working class America, white, black, Hispanic, when they stop going to church, it's dropping out of community. They don't know their neighbors. They're watching TV. Their kids are playing video games. There's a lack of moral formation and there's a lack of community connection. And so it's devastating for the country, but particularly for the working class and the poor, that we are secularizing. So we could talk about why we're doing it. The faults lie in government, the faults lie in culture, and the fault lie in our churches. And uh, I mean, we could we could talk for three hours about the, the the causes of secularization. But you're right to say that the effect is a breakdown of community, a breakdown of family, and that the elites sort of are blind to this because they're partly insulated from it.
1: So I'm chairman of the board of a nonprofit that's trying to arrest the decline. In specifically the the conservative Presbyterian denominations in the country, mm-hmm. and they took they they took a poll among pastors within these denominations and asked um, the pastors if they viewed themselves as as leaders. And I would have thought that eighty percent plus would have said yes, but eighty seven percent said no that they oh. did not view themselves as leaders because. they're they're more thinkers and theologians and, and studiers of scripture and, and, and documents that, that analyze scripture. And they dug a little deeper and found out that most of the major leading conservative uh, seminaries around the country don't teach courses in leadership. They're much more into Greek and Hebrew and, and -hmm. so on. Um, and it struck me that what you're talking about, kind of this, this moral failure and, and, and lack of resilience, uh, morally among many Americans in these various communities we're talking about in the country, you you go to the church and you have pastors who don't consider themselves to be leaders, and they're afraid to confront some of the really difficult issues out there socially, whether it's abortion or uh, homosexual practice and behavior or transgender or some of these kind of things um not just the social issues either but but you know uh, online pornography and some of these things that are chipping away at the family uh, drug addiction w- would you comment about that and and how the church it's it's almost like the church the roaring lion uh, that's represented in the in the Narnia books it's like the, all the teeth of, of the lion <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> no so you do want to make sure that you're communicating if you're a pastor or anybody that you're communicating in a language that the people you're speaking to understand literally figuratively etc but so many modern churches try to make themselves relevant by making themselves similar by reducing the contrast between the message they're sending and the message that the rest of the culture is sending so they become more like the surrounding culture with the hope that that can bring people in the doors now read the Gospels, there are times when, when Jesus makes sure to speak in a language that's very accessible. But then there are also times where he goes out and he just says, I'm asking you to give up everything that came before, to give up the rest of the world around you. Because as long as you hold on to these other things, you're not going to come with me. And so I'm a Catholic. And one of the things we have going for us is that, like, nobody is trying to make, or most Pastors are not trying to make Mass seem like daily life. We don't have big TV screens. We don't have rock and roll bands. We still have a lot of baby boomers playing guitar from, you know, since the, the same guitar they've been playing since the 1960s at Mass. But for the most part, like we're speaking in Latin and Greek a little bit on Sunday. That's nothing like what we're doing the rest of the week. So Sunday worship feels different than the culture. And um, obviously, Hopefully, you know, you can go every day to Mass if you're a Catholic, and, and every day when you're at Mass, it's something different. It's something more reverent, and it stands out. So that's just sort of an aesthetic taste. Um, but also, people respond, and I don't know what you're finding when you're looking at conservative Presbyterian churches. People respond when you ask them to do something hard. If you say, oh, this is going to be no problem, this is easy, just go ahead, keep doing what you're doing, just you know, say grace before dinner or something, that doesn't motivate people. If you're saying, actually, we're asking you to give up stuff, we're asking you to sacrifice, we're asking you to give up everything ultimately except for what matters most, that gets people. People need purpose in life. Um, a lot of what I talk about in the book is how organizations, belonging to organizations, means somebody's asking you to volunteer, right? But that also applies on the spiritual level we were, we're called upon to sacrifice a lot. And that isn't a bad news. It's good news that that actually attracts people.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think you've, you've hit on something really important there where people really want to be inspired. They don't want to live dull, mundane lives and just slog through it all. And I, I feel like that there's a lot of fear among um, the pastorate in in today's age where they just want to dress Significant issues that get at the core of people's lives and could improve their their station in life. They, they won't hit those head on. They want to give you kind of tummy rubbing ser- sermons, so to speak. Feel yeah. good for a little while, but then it, it evaporates really, really rapidly. And I'm glad you brought up the, 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 uh, your Catholicism because we've got a, uh, a Christian ministry on our ranch in Colorado. I'm Presbyterian and I, I got inspired that Catholics do silent retreat and reflection so much better than protestants do protestants have the big loud rock music and the the hip preacher in the in the skinny jeans and you know two buttons down sure shirt collar uh, shirt saying something cool and hip but th- there's so much more depth in the christian life and getting away and reflecting before god almighty so we do silent retreats up there modeled after what catholics do going off to um Catholic monasteries to to have a director and take two weeks and of reflection. Have have you? Do you read Rod Dreher by any chance in the American yes. Conservative? Yeah. What do you think of Rod's Benedict option uh, in terms of his viewpoint on where America's going and what Christians should be thinking about?
0: I mean, so the, uh, Rod, I think, uh, offers a Benedict option on multiple levels, um, on a a literal level um, of you know building your own community where people around you are the, the same religion with the same values. Um, I think there are big practical problems with that and some moral problems to that. Um, uh, I think as, as Christians, we're supposed to be sort of in the world, but not of the world, as, as some people like to put it. Um, but I do think there has to be, what we try to communicate to our children is that we are countercultural. But the culture believes certain things, and um, they've been led astray. Not that everybody who does this is bad, but you know, my daughter watching an NFL game—so you know, eight years ago, she's like, "Why are those women, those cheerleaders, acting like that?" Now, ironically, now Dan Snyder, the the Redskins. Owner is, is possibly getting uh, going to be in legal trouble because of this um, because they were exploited, uh, which is yeah. not surprising at all to all of us. But I would oh. say, look, that's that's what the TV stations find sells. That's what the NFL they stand to make money off of this, and a lot of people just uh, they think it's okay, and we don't think that. And there's so much about this culture that you know. We don't dress different. We're not, you know, walking around with you know the looking like we're Pennsylvania Dutch, but we do dress a little bit different. Um, we we speak a little bit different. We but we try to make it clear we're countercultural, not because the culture is full of evil people, but because sort of evil ideas have, have gotten in there. So I do think that's important to make sure that you are saying Christianity is countercultural. It's tough, because especially in a lot of America, the culture is sort of white Protestantism. In a lot of neighborhoods 40 years ago in Pittsburgh, the culture was, say, Italian Catholic. And so it might be easy to think, oh, we want just a fully Christian culture. I don't know. I read the Bible. I say you're going to want a fully Christian culture at home and at church, but it's going to be in a larger sea that's going to be a lot more rocky than that.
1: Well, I agree with you, and I don't see how you're salt and light if you're in the bunker all the time. It just doesn't seem to quite work super well that way. One of the one of the main reasons, Tim, that I've started doing these podcasts, besides the fact that, for better or for worse, I'm I'm intellectually never, I'm I'm intellectually perpetually restless, and I like to do (laughs) just manage people's money, which is what my vocation is. Um, But I I really want to give back. Uh, to the next generation, and and give them some insight into people, their parents' age, and 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 older than that, that that have some insight into what's going on in the world, and hopefully can help them along their journey and their path. The millennials, the Gen Zs. Let's talk about journalism. You're you're a journalist, and that that's a a very, um, di- I think, distinguished profession that's under siege right now. A by the fact that the mainstream media is viewed as corrupted and not honest, and B, it's really hard to make a living in, in journalism today. Mm-hmm. If you were talking to a 20-year-old who was seriously considering going to work in journalism in some capacity, what what would you advise that young person to do?
0: I mean, I think it's the best. It's my favorite way to work, to spend my time. I'm, you were talking about an intellectual curiosity. A journalist's job is, if you're sitting at home saying, Gee, I wonder what is going on in X. Or this study looks interesting. I wish I had the time to read it. Or I'd like to call that senator and ask him why. Well, that's my job is to do that and to do it for you, the reader. So last night I I got off work uh, late. I was actually downtown DC and I said, oh, the protests are going on around the White House. And so I this was during the last night of the um, of the Republican convention. And so I went and I did two laps around the White House, and I took pictures, and I tried to interview people, and I took videos, and I got to see what was going on and up front, front row seat. And I I love it. And then it's my job to often sit down and explain it. And what alienated America was, was me saying, there's something about my country I don't understand why people think the American dream is dead. I don't think it's a simple answer. I'm going to go and try and figure out what it is. And so I go and literally talk to people at churches, at coffee shops, at bars, on the street corner, outside a Trump rally. This is what I would do if I were a millionaire, <laughs> this is what I'm doing as a journalist. Do not let my employers see this. They might think they can cut my pen and get away with it. You can't, because I have six kids. As I said, I'm a Catholic, and I, I would have to find another job. But I'm really glad that I get to uh, do this. So the advice I would give would be always be learning that you're always telling your reader something new. Never think, oh, I'm just going to explain what I know or just make arguments or anything like that. I've got nothing against opinion journalism. I'm an opinion journalist, but I'm an opinion journalist who's constantly out there trying to learn new stuff, trying to get in arguments. Before I write a piece, I'll often call my brothers who disagree with me and say, here's what I think. Tell me why I'm wrong. That's that constant learning, ideally new facts, not just arguments, that's that, that is valuable. Readers will value that. Employers will value that. And it'll make your job uh, very intellectually rewarding. As you're suggesting, it's hard to make a living. You mentioned I, AEI and the Washington Examiner. That's two jobs. It keeps me pretty busy. right? That's the sort of thing you have to do in, in journalism. But I, I absolutely love it. If you can make it work, do it by finding facts that people don't know and telling it to them. Combine that with having real passions Subject matters you care about, whether it's your faith, a language, a part of the country, a part of the world, a policy area, a cultural area, and just become something of an expert on that by talking to people, reading, studying, et cetera.
1: What's 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 your all time favorite interview you've ever done and and your all time hardest interview you've ever done?
0: (laughs) Um, So, geez. So I'll just talk about Biden. I had a series when I was about 22. I showed up on capitol hill once and i asked him about uh immigration law and illegal immigrants and he was like you got an irish name he basically said like are your parents illegal irish immigrants and i was so caught off guard that he sort of won the interview and our readers loved it so much and biden got mail about so then i showed up a couple weeks later this is when he was a senator and i asked him another question and he sort of Got into the game. There's a running series for a few weeks of me asking him serious questions and him just kind of turning it on me in a proto Trumpian way. And um, the, the, it was not edifying in the sense of informing the readers about policy issues, but it was entertaining for the senator, for me, and for our readers. Toughest interview, toughest interview is in my book. Um, I was in uh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And I had picked the county, Thea County, because it had the biggest drop-off in uh, church attendance, according to this one study. This was for evangelicals and Catholics. And so I found a, a bar called Smitty's that had great, uh, great wings, according to the Yelp review. And I just sat down there, and I do this a lot. I just sit there. And wait. And then I introduced myself to the other members who are sort of looking at me skeptically. And I say, Oh, I'm a political reporter. And they all say, Oh, I don't care about politics. I say, Oh, but how's the economy here? And then eventually they get talking. And they were talking about how there were two problems, which seemed the opposite, right? One was there's no jobs for anybody, the other is nobody's willing to work hard. And it was all guys who were about 50. 50 uh, year old white guys probably everybody at the bar complaining about nobody working hard at 2:30 on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> and so I had to sort of ask. I said, Dave, why are you not working? And Dave, the guy on the end of the bar, said, Oh, well, I got this bad back. And he walked me through all his back surgery. It sounded excruciating. I said, Okay, so out here, all the jobs are sort of construction or there's no desk jobs. He said, I can't even sit at a desk for half an hour. So I said they've you've been sitting at the bar for about 90 minutes now and he looks at me and he says well today i'm numb because my son died this morning oh and it was it was opioid overdose probably and i i, I knew these numbers about this county but i had never quite looked it in the eye what this alienation this lo- loss of family loss of community loss of purpose uh led to until sort of giving this guy a hard time, I pulled out of him this pain that then just rested on me for the rest of my time traveling around the country. Um, it was necessary. I needed to see it face-to-face and not just as numbers on on the page. But that's the sort of thing that unless you're there, really immersing yourself in the culture, you're never really going to get out of
1: people. You know, he kind of got ridiculed for this, but, but Ross Perot really... At least in terms of the Midwest, NAFTA was good for Texas and California and some other states that that border Mexico. But for the Midwest, it was a disaster. And and Perot was ridiculed for his giant sucking sound and perspective on that. But he turned out to be pretty much dead on.
0: And his electorate, um, his electorate is Trump's electorate. the, The people who voted for Perot didn't vote before and didn't vote after. I mean, you voted in 92, 96, and then they disappeared until uh, 2016. And so those same bars, like Smitty's, that I would stop at in the 2004, 8, 12 cycle, people would say, I don't care about politics. I don't vote. Those roadside country bars. When I stopped by in 2016, they say, I hate politics. That's why I'm voting for Trump, because he's not a politician.
1: I think we're running out of time. And I think you've got something you've got to move on to. So I want to ask you one last question then. Yep. And um, I have six children as well. I've got three biological children and, and three stepchildren. And when you when you fast forward thirty years, and or forty years or fifty years or however long we we've, we've got left, and you're able to frame up what your legacy is to your children and your grandchildren, what what would you want that to be?
0: So increasingly, I have this um, sort of. I don't want to call it a narrow view, but um, a a more local view of what a legacy could be. Um, I don't think most people should go out and try to change the world. I think that that's a dangerous thing. That's what leads to ideologues and socialists and fascists and that sort of thing. Um, I think we also can't just mind our own business. Not even mind our own immediate family. Some people say, I just want to be remembered as a great dad. Yeah, that's the most important thing, but that can't be all it is. Um, it's, so I think of two things. One is just doing good work. God put us here to love other people and to do good work. And so if you just do good work day in, day out, even if it's managing other people's money, even if it's selling insurance, and you do it well and virtuously and with love and offer it up, I think that's incredibly um, important. And so some people ask me, what was the point of that article that you wrote, Tim? And I said, I think it was true. I think I said it well. Um, And that's my job. And so if I could just do that consistently. But the second thing is, and this is sort of how I end Alienated America, too. If you you go to a lot of cities, there's a big building named after a billionaire because he donated money. And that's great. If billionaires listening, keep building community institutions like libraries, parks, that sort of thing. If you come to my parish, St. Andrew Apostle in in Silver Spring, you will find the Terrence McArdle Athletic Field. You will find the baseball diamonds called Dottoli's Diamond. Mike Dottoli, Terrence McArdle did not donate any money to St. Andrew's besides what they put in the basket. These were young men, dads, uh, alumni of the school who graduated and dedicated their lives to just serving kids, coaching t-ball, coaching football. Um... So that would be my legacy. Somewhere have a T-ball infield named after me. If that was the only way people knew of me 100 years from now, I'd be very happy.
1: You know, that's that's a really poignant comment. I'm sure you've read Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes was my grandfather's favorite uh, book in the Bible. I'm not sure it's mine, but it's top three or five, something like that. And it basically the whole premise of it is Solomon telling people listening to him, hey, work hard. Live a moral life that honors God, and that's about as good as it gets down here. It's kind of your your purpose down here, and it don't make it over complex. and And it's pretty simple. Work hard, which is a gift from God to be able to work under under the sun every day of your life, and and honor God by the 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 kind of life you lead from an integrity standpoint. If you just focus on that, you're going to leave a pretty darn good legacy to everybody who comes after you.
0: That's great. You just gave me a great. Uh... A weekend reading assignment
1: <laughs> it's a great book it really is it's very poignant and it's it's not it's it's so uh, pragmatic and I wouldn't say cynical but skeptical about life and realistic it's mm-hmm. a biblical version of real politics so to speak Yeah. <laughs> hey Tim this has been great thank you for taking the time and I hope you have a great weekend and I look forward to shaking your hand in person sometime when we get this virus eradicated <laughs> great thanks you too Thanks for listening to see the future this is george c and i'll help you join us for our future conversations